Thrill Seekers. Uh, this is Alex Dolan, and I'm really excited to bring on Kira Jane Buxton today to talk about her book, Hollow Kingdom. As a reminder, uh, we are part of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and this show with Kira and all other shows of Thrill Seekers are available at alexdolan.com. That's www.alexdolan.com. Um, so Kira Jane Buxton, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So you are a, um, you're, you're in Seattle, right? I am. I'm sort of just north of Seattle in the burbs, uh, so to speak. But yes, yeah, Seattle area. At some point, so I'm, I'm going to be a, like a pretty soon, I'm going to be relocating to the Northwest. So uh, just really outside, outside of Portland. Yeah. And um Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think it's wonderful. I'm. Uh, where are you? you're in San Francisco? Now? I'm in I'm in the Bay Area, in San Francisco Bay Area, Bay Area. and and okay. um, just love it up there. And um, yeah, I, I you know I'll I figure I'll I'll find a way to deal with the cloud coverage. <laughs> it's not as it's not as bad as people think. I mean, it's not it's not that sort of oppressive, low, angry, dark clouds. It's quite bright when it's gray. It's I find it delightful um, as long as you're okay with a little, you know, drizzle. <laughs> I'm fine with it. I, I actually don't I don't mind a little gloom. And when you live in the San Francisco Bay Area, especially uh, in the East Bay where I live, it's it's sunny for nine and a half months a year. And some people right. would love that, and it is awesome down here. But I kind of like a little drizzle occasionally. Yeah, uh, it means we it means we get all that glorious green and the beautiful, you know, gorgeous evergreens and all the moss. I love the moss. Gosh, what is it about moss? It's just oh, heavenly. Moss. So yeah, and and for me, ferns. I have a thing yes. for yeah. It's like my cozy space. Love it. You, oh my gosh, I'm excited for you. You're going yeah, to be in heaven. Me too. Um, <laughs> so, all right. So I'm really excited to, <laughs> I'm talking about things that are totally unrelated to your book, Hollow Kingdom. Um, <laughs> and I want to give a shout out to, um, to Books on B, uh, which is in Hayward, California. And it has one of the best owners and curators uh, that I've seen, um, and she recommended your book, and she has it featured out. Just said this is one of the books of the year, and then later on, oh. like I'm now seeing it on a lot of people's books of the year book. Um, and for people that don't uh, don't know about the book, can you just set it up? What is it? What what it's about? Yeah, absolutely. So, Hollow Kingdom. Um, I've, it's it's an odd one. It's hard to describe. I've been uh, I've been saying it is a humorous. Uh, literary dystopian novel with some horror elements and some nature writing. So, you know, that old uh, trope. And <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's, Oh, another uh, one of those. <laughs> I know, right? Wah, wah, here we go again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, it, it's a story that's narrated by uh, a snarky American crow, uh, uh, I don't know if I'm able to say his name, but it, uh, it's you can swear. You, you can swear on this show. I'm, I can I can swear. Okay, so his yeah. name is Shit Turd. Yes. Um, and he's often referred to as ST. Um, and he has been raised in the Ravenna neighborhood of Seattle. Um, he has been raised by a human, an electrician named Big Jim, who's kind of a a good old boy who loves his guns and his trucks. And um, and ST the crow just sort of doesn't. Um, 
he doesn't like the natural world. He he uh, <laughs> he's been raised sort of in this very anthropocentric environment where he you know he's a big TV watcher and he's culturally sort of a, believes he's human. Um, so you know he's been busy watching all the different channels of TV, Bravo TV, National Geographic, and um, his favorite food is uh, of course the finest uh, cuisine known to man, the Cheeto. Yes. And. Um, <laughs> And then uh, one day something happens to uh, ST's owner, Big Jim. Um, his eyeball sort of falls out of his head and uh, ST thinks, oh, something's a little off here. And uh, he sets about on this little mission. He goes to Walgreens and tries to find some uh, <laughs> rather unfruitful uh, mission to Walgreens to try and find some sort of remedy for um, Big Jim. And when he realizes that that's not working and that the problem Big Jim has seems to be a little bit more widespread, um, ST has to go on this sort of quest out into the natural world and the, the big wide world to find, you know, some help for Big Jim and ultimately maybe save humanity. So it's, <laughs> it's a little unusual, <laughs> this book. <laughs> and it's, yeah. um, it's, it's certainly, you know, it's, it's, um, it's funny and it's dystopian and it, it doesn't take itself too seriously, but it's also this, you know, this real, uh, my love letter to the natural world and, you know, sort of my veneration for, uh, the creatures we share this planet with. I love that. My, my, um, I'll, I'll add a, my, my douchey marketing pitch <laughs> about this book when I describe it to other people. It's like, it's, it's the bird's eye view of the zombie apocalypse, literally. Yes, I love that. <laughs> I love it. It is. It truly is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the thing that like is now ingrained in my, like my lexicon is just wanting to use mofo as a term of endearment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I use, I you know, I use it all the time. That's what, um, you know, uh, ST's picked up so much of Big Jim's sort of vernacular and his mannerisms and his particular personality. And he is a, certainly a very large personality. And mofo is just what Big Jim calls people. And it is kind of a term of endearment. Um, and, but I found myself using it. And I, I found myself using it in weird you know, or rather formal situations and having people looking at me like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, language. Yeah, I, li- I kind of like the idea of reappropriating the word, but I, I just, I like, it's one of those like running jokes throughout the book that um, I just love the fact that he just thinks human beings are called mofos. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's never yeah, not funny, a, yeah. Actually, <laughs> you know, there's actually a lot of that in the book. A lot of... Um, I love playing with these ideas of, you know, preconceived notions about things or how seriously we, you know, even sort of, I, I you know, played with my own sort of, uh, I don't know if prejudice is the right word, but, you know, these ideas about things that we get and we, they become so concrete. So it was really interesting to sort of look at the world from, as you say, this bird's eye view and try and inhabit a creature that doesn't take everything we do for granted and really sees us as this kind of extraordinary species um, and who's equally as interested in our foibles as our, you know, great accomplishments as a species. So that was, it was tremendous fun to play with that. Well, and the the thing I kept remembering is there's a, um, there's an actual, uh, there was an actual chimpanzee uh, project called the Washoe Project in in Washington state. Um, I don't know if you, if you're, remember that but it was basically chimps that did sign language 
and the main chimp was oh. called Washo, W-A-S-H-O-E. And um, okay. I remember the there's a great book um, called Next of Kin that is about that hmm. project. Um, it's nonfiction, but one of the things they talk about, they, they, the experiments they did is they had two, they had a deck of cards that had other chimpanzees, other animals, and then human beings. And they had them separate them into piles that were me and not me. And, mm. um, and the chimps that were hanging around the people would put the, their photos with the humans and other chimps and other oh. animals in another pile. And cause it was wow. so closely associated with humans because of that proximity. Yeah. And it, yeah. I, just kept thinking about that of like your your narr st's narration of like just like how how an animal would think of itself it was if it was around yeah. a big gym its whole life um, absolutely and even even in my own life you know and in, in our own lives um i don't know if you have pets um but you know we develop these very very close bonds and it's it's a form of devotion you know i and we're communicating and we we're living alongside these animals and I, I find it interesting that, I, I mean, sort of what's explored in the book, too, is this idea that humans have sort of lost touch with um, the natural world and, and around them. But also sort of sometimes we have this habit of seeing ourselves as, you know, sort of uh, the superior species. And um, I like to challenge that in the book. And, and you know, and, and, you know, even the way we talk about um, intelligence, you know, we measure intelligence in animals pretty much to our own strengths you know <laughs> right it, it doesn't yeah. sort of transfer and if you're looking at something like a like an octopus a cephalopod uh this is a creature with technically nine brains and the ability to regenerate uh, a limb that's been severed um without actually using brain power they've they've, they've discovered that you know the limb regenerates of its own sort of uh, volition, which is so fascinating and not something like if there was a, t a cephalopod test of intelligence, we would fail miserably. <laughs> you know, so, it's, it's interesting. I don't know. I'm so fascinated by this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really interesting and for people reading. So there is an octopus that has, has a prominent role in the book. And um, I was going to, I was going to get into that. Um, but the, I really love how you develop that, uh, that as, an alternate form of intelligence that we're it, we just don't have it it's so different from our own we don't have the measurement to equate how ours are the way we think relates to the way they would think and um yeah. and it's because it, i've been i've also like i think a lot of new research has come out on cephalopods and how incredible those animals are and how yeah. smart they are and like i, I like a I've never, I never ate octop octopuses to begin with, which yeah. I believe is actually the pronounce, the correct pluralization yeah. of it. Yeah, it is. It yeah. is. But like, I just, like, I feel like people shouldn't eat them anymore. <laughs> like, I, I feel very much the same way. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel in, it's also sort of, you know, it, it feels like it's a new trend and there's this new wave of, of uh, all these articles coming out and the scientific community saying, well, look, we've discovered that this animal has intelligent, uh, intelligence or this animal has emotional intelligence. But I feel that, you know, a little 
uh, a little walk in nature, a little walk outside, just even outside your door and paying attention to what animals are around and what they're doing. It's incredibly enlightening. You'll discover all sorts of things and it, it's right there. It's available to us at all times. Um, and that's kind of, I think it's magical. I think, and I think we're really only beginning to scratch the surface about animal intelligence. Right. And I, I the thing that, that I always, I'm, I find it interesting that a lot of people would deny this, but the way, I, th I think the way humans use our brains, 90% of it is related to emotions and base needs and, you know, yeah. the, the amount that we use of our brain that we use for intellectualization and abstract reasoning is so minor that when you're, yeah. like, when you get to your book and you're talking about ST's relationship with Big Jim and their common love of Cheetos and um, <laughs> like no, none of that is higher functioning logic at work. That's all like yeah. emotion. So I, I don't like, I always wonder why people would deny that that exists in the animal kingdom too, because things like love and need and wants aren't, that's not higher reasoning. That's just what it means to be alive. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. I have um I have two, I have a lot of, <laughs> I have a lot of animals I've befriended, um, but I have two wild crows that, that visit me every day. And the female in particular um, is, she's, she's a very big personality. She's a, she's a goofball, but she's incredibly loving. And when I talk to people about this relationship, there's often the assumption that they only hang around me because I'm feeding them. Um, and I do, I do offer them peanuts. I give them, you know, some of my food. We, you know, we sit together, we have breakfast <laughs> often. Right. Um, but it's, I, I make sure that they're not, I'm not their sole food source. That's important because I don't want them to become dependent in the event something happened. Um, but they often uh, spend time with me when they don't want the food. Um, and I, you know, it's, it, I think that's hard for people to understand that you could develop an emotional connection with an animal that's reciprocal. That's not, you know, it, it's synanthropic, but not, you know, in terms of, you know, it's not as simplistic as just the animal sees you as a food source. I, I agree. And you're talking to somebody who has a pet dingo. So, um, you know, like, what? I, yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> It I happened think, because yeah. there were guys in my neighborhood that fostered dogs that were rescues from Guatemala. And I think what basically happened is my dog's mom was a dingo that got mixed in with the other street dogs and got rescued by accident. Oh, wow. And so she was wow. pregnant at the time and had puppies. And one of the puppies is, is now living with me. And so it's interesting because she's, she's different than, the say, the dog I grew up with. So she doesn't yeah. act like a domesticated dog. And she's there's a little bit more intelligence than wow. I'm used to, but there yeah, is definitely, yeah. but her emotions are so transparent. It's like, why, why yeah. wouldn't you see that? Um, yeah. I want to talk to you about, this is not about pet talk, although I'm having a lot of fun doing it, but so <laughs> you have two crows and I totally wanted to talk about that. Or what are their names? Um, I call them uh, T is the female and Dart is the male. Um, okay. And yeah, and uh, T was sort of, I called her T because I was sort of, I wasn't sure of her, whether she was male or female in, uh, in the beginning. And it actually, they are 
actually diachromatic so they can see, uh, you know, they, birds can see UV light in a way that we can't. So they can tell each other apart quite easily, but our we limited human brains cannot. We just sort of see them as black, which, which they're not. If you see a you know, sun on a crow, you'll see they're quite colorful, beautiful, you know, rich purples and greens and blues. Um, and so anyway, the point there was that I didn't know whether she was male or female, and it took a it took the first nesting season for me to realize because she was busy with the nest, and then Dart would sort of sheepishly come up like, Ooh, you, know, you have an extra peanut, you know, baby on the way, sort of thing. Um, and they're amazing. They uh, it took a it took a while to build up trust um, with them, and now you know I spend time with them really every day and. Uh, tea I can call from the top of an evergreen which is amazing because the evergreens around me I've got Douglas firs that are about 60 feet um, tall and so she'll come down from there and and she's she's very funny she's a she's a goofball she's incredibly clumsy she broke her wing before I had um, you know met her she'd broken her wing and it's healed kind of funny so it's a little bit it's entirely functional it just doesn't sit exactly um in the right position so she looks <laughs> she looks a little interesting she has sort of a swagger or a waddle um she drools when she eats um she and she's a lot of fun she's she plays she she loves to do little pranks like uh hide and then jump out at me she loves to scare <laughs> me that's, that's and I'm, I'm a particularly yeah. sensitive person. I hate I'm, anything makes me jump. So I don't know. She has a lot of fun with that. They've well, left. They've left me gifts. Um, part of the reason yeah, I'm laughing is there's there's this legendary guy who just passed away in San Francisco, who called Bushman, and he basically made a career <laughs> out of uh, basically hiding behind a bush and jumping out and scaring people. Oh no! I would have to leave. The, I would have to leave the city. Like I, I would not be able to have handled Bushman. That would be it for me. I guess. I, I am shocked Bushman lived as long as he did. Honestly. Yes, truly. I know. The one time my husband did that, he did a surprise jump out in the house, and I threw a bottle of conditioner at his head. So it's just like no, <laughs> no. Uh, but so see, yes, he is, and and her partner Dart. Um, He's this very regal, he's, he's a gorgeous crow. He's got this amazing, he looks like a, like a fighter jet from the side, just this very sloped, you know, sort of samurai sort of a beak. Gorgeous boy, a very aloof, a little bit more aloof than she is. Um, and he's, he sort of keeps a really good eye on her. He's, they're amazing as a couple because it, remind, it reminds me a lot of my husband and I, sort of this great caretaker and then this sort of bumbling drooling <laughs> that would be me um accident prone you know woman <laughs> um but yeah they're, they're amazing they, they leave me gifts they accompany me on walks uh they know my car which is amazing they know it from above and they'll i have a sort of hill that you drive down before you get to my house and they'll swoop alongside the car and um and they, they bring me their their fledglings their babies they've introduced me to two um which is amazing um it's a, it's it's probably one of the most rewarding relationships of my life. I I worry about them. I um, you know I, I it's amazing and and being sort of let into their world. I was incredibly inspired and and certainly a lot of T's antics inspired ST's um, shenanigans and mannerisms and uh, yeah. Well, I, I was going to ask the obvious question is so what what part of um, 
and or Dart kind of crossed over to form ST's personality? Well, I think certainly um, T has no tolerance for intruders in her territory. Um, and she gets, she gets sort of mad very quickly about other crows coming around my house um, that haven't been approved by her. Um, and she's very funny. She'll puff up and get this huge, I mean, it looks like she's wearing a sort of Russian hat. It's, she puffs her whole head up. <laughs> and then she, she sort of storms around the place making these ridiculous noises. And you can almost see Dart going, oh, here she goes. Um, and that, that informed ST's sort of, you know, this sort of like, he's very passionate about things, um, good and bad. You know, he's quick to quick to sort of he's got these really high registers you know um of emotion and he's quick like he doesn't just get angry he gets very angry or he gets you know he's his heart's so big he feels everything deeply and I, I feel that's a lot from t um she's funny obviously the the wing her crow uh, her crow her wing um break inspired the idea you know that maybe st would have a problem down the line um yeah sort of generally just and and then sort of looking at what they were doing, I, I I get to see the nictitating membrane up close, which is amazing. Um, which is sort of like remind me the what the bird. nictitating membrane is. Is that the that one is interior? Bird. The is that the yes, eye? Interior. That's it. That's it. Okay. It's sort of an extra eyelid that birds have to protect the eye, and it's incredible. It's a little bit reptilian. It's it's beautiful to see up close. Um, it's it's hard when you photograph them and you get the nictitating membrane over the eye because they do look a bit zombieish. <laughs> but um, yes, I got to see a lot of this stuff up close. I got to I get to see that they love to sunbathe, um, which is a thing I didn't know that they did, and. Um, yeah, lots of lots of endless inspiration from them. And Dart actually inspired uh, the character of Cry, who is a oh. um, sort of the leader of the crows. And okay, he's yeah, sort of yeah. definitely a yeah, definitely inspired that character. Very sort of heroic kind of a crow. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> and for people listening, again, I want to remind everyone we're talking to Kira Jane Buxton, who wrote a fantastic book called Hollow Kingdom. Um, which is a totally original take on the zombie apocalypse, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about uh, the humor in the book, but before before we pivot away from animals, um, just to give people a sense, like in addition to the crows, you guys live with a ton of animals. Well, so tell us who, what else you have uh, in your life. Well, um, outside it's. It's uh, the crows. Um, I have Stellar's Jays uh, who visit now. I have a family of five, um, and that, that's that's really intense. That's like that's like having a rock group descend on you, or like Velociraptors descend on you every morning. They are crazy birds with punk rock hair and punk rock attitudes. They're a lot of fun. Um, I have uh, a family of juncos, dark-eyed juncos, um, hummingbirds. I hen feed hummingbirds. Um, so I sit outside with them and have gotten to know a whole charm of them. Um, and that's been really fascinating to see, you know, up close what their lives are like. Um, squirrels, I have Earl and Girl. Um, Earl is a real <laughs> bruiser of a squirrel. He's a lot of fun. Um, and what else do I have? Goodness, flickers. I, I have a lot of animals. Inside, I have um, three uh, cats that I rescued. Um, 
one of whom is the inspiration for Genghis Cat, who is a character in the novel, um, a very uh, <laughs> narcissistic and, um, uh, I mean, funny, but a sort of quintessential uh, tabby cat. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. I, lo I love I that those passages. Because <laughs> it's exactly <laughs> what I think that Genghis Cat would think. Yeah, I have I have lived with the inspiration for Genghis Cat uh, for 13 years, and she has not. She still is very much a tyrant. It's like living with a small tiger. Um, she. It took me. Uh, it took me. I think on oh no, four years uh, to convince her that I was a good guy. Um, and she used to. She learned that she could launch herself at the back of my knee, and I'd fall over. So when she was a kitten, right after I'd rescued her, she would do that. Um, and the other thing is that she doesn't like me to uh, sing ever in the house. She will attack me if I sing. So I have been unable to sing in my own home for 13 years. <laughs> um, so this is the joys of cat ownership. Um, so the three cats, and then I have a, uh, a I have a Brussels Griffon, which is a small uh, bearded canine who is he's basically a comedian. He's a very very funny character. Um, yeah, so lots of inspiration all around. And and my first, I, actually, my first job was at a zoo. I, I grew up in Asia and the Middle East. And um, my first, I, I say job, I was 12. Uh, my, I was very annoying as a kid. <laughs> and um, my mom figured that she had to do something with me. And I was always, you know, bringing animals home. So she, she got me a job, a volunteer job at the zoo where I was given buckets of mealworms. And I had to pick out the beetles that had gone through their metamorphosis. And um, I, was, I was like inordinate, in, in extraordinary, extraordinarily proud of this job. Um, but then like three days in, I was bored because I was 12 and precocious. So I would take myself off around the zoo and I befriended a bunch of keepers and ended up having, having these amazing uh, animal experiences. Um, just incredible. I got to um, hand feed uh, the Sumatran rhino and um, I got to hand feed our hippos and I held a cobra and I was bitten on the butt by a baby white tiger and you know all the stuff of dreams the stuff of dreams <laughs> <laughs> well so where in the Middle East was this uh, well that was so in I grew up in Dubai and then on my 10th birthday we moved to Jakarta Indonesia so the zoo was in Indonesia Oh, great. Yeah. I was actually wondering, yeah. I, I got a chance to go to Dubai for the first time a couple of years ago. Really? Um, what very, did you think? Um, I, I, I liked it. it. It's a strange city, right? You know, it's, it's, it's yeah. totally manufactured. Um, there, it, I get the feeling there would be very little there if they hadn't kind of forced this town into existence. Um, that's, where, that's what it looked like when I was there. <laughs> yeah, and, like, and so I it's was kind of... I was kind of torn between marveling at these kind of modern wonders of the world, like the Burj Khalifa and the archipelagos mm. and, um, mm. and, you know, all the, the Chihuly glass sculptures that are everywhere. Um, yeah. And um, so that just the spectacle of it is genuinely amazing. Um, and at the yeah. same time, like being cognizant of the fact that this was built on the backs of like, slave labor from india basically yeah <laughs> um, and yeah. so like mm, like i'm not sure how i feel about this but yeah uh, and also the culture is so 
um, I mean, people refer to it like there's a lot of parallels to Vegas and it isn't quite like Vegas, but the idea of that, it hasn't grown like in a city the way a normal city would. Like it's, mm. it's almost been, it's just been like willed into existence, but it's not like another right. city that would like, maybe it had a port trade and it like yeah. actually had like a, an economy and it grew like yeah. uh, it doesn't have that kind of legacy so it's it's just such an anomaly it was um yeah it was very interesting well, what was your take on it living there i i mean i haven't seen it since uh great changes um my parents went back and lived there for another year and and they i don't think they I mean, my fa my father went looking for. We we lived we lived in several homes, um, and when we were there, we moved a lot, and so he went looking for all of them. And everything's just changed so much, you know. Um, so it's hard to reconcile what it was with what it has become. I think um, that makes sense. I'm very eager to go back because I, I mean, I, I have you know my memories were of you know, driving along these long stretches of desert with just nothing, nothing, nothing. And then a Ferrari would whiz by you at 90 miles an hour. <laughs> like, and then camels on your right, you know, right, these right. camels that would just saunter into the backyard. And I, it was, a, it was a wonderful place to grow up. It was a, it was extraordinary. Um, I have very, very good memories. And so I think I would have to go and, you know, uh, really, open up my mind and adjust my expectations I, i've heard a lot about what you what you speak of <laughs> <laughs> well so yeah. how did how was indonesia then by comparison oh um well yeah such a such an interesting thing i i left dubai on my 10th birthday and we went to indonesia and i i remember you know my parents were really good about the you know explaining to us like you know this is where we're moving and then we i remember they had this sort of intro to jakarta vhs that we watched and I was sold. I was, I said, yeah, let's do, yeah, I can't wait. And we went and, um, it was, it was wonderful. It was a wonderful place to, we, I was very lucky. I was in both the American and the British systems, um, for school. The schools were ex uh, just exceptional. Um, I had a, you know, we, we lived in a great area. I had a lot of freedom in Jakarta that I don't think I would have had of if we had, if we'd have stayed in Dubai. Um, and, you know, I got to work at a zoo and continue, you know, uh, rescuing animals, <laughs> you know, finding ways to be around animals. Um, yeah, it was extraordinary. And we, we actually lived um, backed up to a kampong, which is sort of a village uh, in a sort of almost jungle area in the middle, like in the middle of the city, um, which I, I, I think about often. And I, I know if I went back now, it probably I'd have to prepare myself for that not to be there anymore. Um, but we backed up to this jungle. So we, all sorts of things used to sort of crawl over the walls into our um, garden. And we, we rescued lots of things. And I remember being so excited when whenever a, a king cobra would be in the neighborhood, pretty much anything else that came into the neighborhood wasn't an issue. But if a king cobra came in, the, the neighborhood would go on lockdown and nobody was supposed to leave the house. And my mom would have to come and check where I was because I'd be scrabbling out the window because I was desperate to see a King Cobra. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah. So I did actually get to hold a cobra um, at the zoo. And that was, I mean, to this day, still one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. I'm, I'm a big snake person. I do, I love snakes. 
Um, so in, I, I like in Oakland, I <laughs> no, no, I was going to say like, in, so in Oakland, you'd be the person who, when there was the drive-by shooting, you would actually go to the window to see what you could see <laughs> instead yeah. of like being safe. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. But so uh, for King Cobras are, I mean, I, I know they're dangerous, but are they aggressive or is it just they're venomous? Yes. Yeah. They are. Um, they are, and they, you know, they prey on other snakes and other dangerous snakes, and they're, they are aggressive, and they're known for being very aggressive. So, you know, um, the other snakes that would show up would not be so much of a threat or a worry as the, as the king. They, they think they deserve that title. Um, but they're magnificent. If you've seen them up close, oh, beautiful, beautiful snakes absolutely also, gorgeous the, the king but, yeah, cobra very also yeah very well known for their their malt liquor as well um, oh. <laughs> 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 um, um all right i want to take I a quick break <laughs> i'm going to take a quick break i want to remind everybody uh we're talking to kira jane buxton the author of hollow kingdom and you are listening to thrill seekers uh, we are part of authors in the air and this is a trademark copyrighted podcast solely owned by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. Um, as we wind down, I wanted to, to pivot for a second and uh, talk to you about just writing humor. And, um, and you know, the book is, um, I mean, it, it's, it's uh, I talk to a lot of people that say just, it's easier to write the thriller, the horror stuff, um, but to write comedy, especially comedy that really resonates, is like it's so much harder. Like how how was your experience blending comedy with with kind of like this dystopian horror novel? Mm. I think humor and comedy have been like life rafts for me in throughout my life. I think I've always been um sort of I seek out humor authors I I love to see stand-up comedy it's one of my favorite things I I think it's such a um an immediate and you know sort of vulnerable type of art um and I I'm I'm just I'm in awe and admiration of of, of good stand-up comedians um and I think that I've always been drawn to uh humor writers because I I think it it allows for a deeper emotional experience and a deeper sort of resonance of the work. Um, it also never occurred to me that, that not to juxtapose humor with, with other parts of, um, you know, maybe with horror writing or with it, humor finds its way into sort of everything I do. Um, right. And I feel like that's sort of indicative of life. You know, some of the funniest things happen um, in very painful moments or, terrible things um with a little bit of time become uh terribly funny <laughs> you know and it's it's partly a coping mechanism but it's also a great um a great way to evoke empathy or a great way to connect with people um a sort of very immediate way to do that um so i i think even when i'm trying not to write humor or or trying to write something more serious i will see something that's a little bit that, or I'll find something. I'll find something hilarious about it, and it, it's certainly a coping mechanism in my in my everyday life too. I I totally feel the same way. Um, well, one, uh, to your point about um, stand up comedy being a very vulnerable art form, like I I, mm. I, I have so much respect for that because I, I was there was a point where I was um, 
a touring musician and it was um the performance was like it has its own challenges and excitements to Mm -hmm. it but if i wasn't feeling connected to the crowd i could always kind of bury myself in the playing um but i feel like like with the comics that i know you're essentially reading your diary on stage and if you aren't going over it is sort of like that immediate rejection of you as an individual because you're sharing yeah the most vulnerable parts of your life for their amusement <laughs> yeah so the, like, so true. the courage it takes to get on stage with just you and a microphone and, and yeah. talk about that is like i i am also in awe of that um, yes, and, and the deep generosity of the act, I think. Right. You know, you, you have to give so much of yourself. Um, yeah, amazing. Yeah. Um, and also, I'll, sh- I'll share this story, which is, like, I, I'm very much a, a gallows humor kind of person, but um, there's a, <laughs> you know, probably like 10 years ago now, my dad passed away, and when my mom and I had to go and pick out coffins, we went to the funeral home, and there was a guy um, who was they were praying for a wake and the casket was open and the guy looked like he was probably 98 years old and weighed about 90 pounds and he decided to be buried i'm from i'm from new england originally and he decided to be yeah. buried in like a triple xl new england patriots jersey <laughs> and oh. it was hysterical <laughs> and, and that was sort of like what my mom and i needed at that moment where i looked it over and i was like oh. is it wrong to find that funny and she's like no it's really funny <laughs> it's divine yeah uh, <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> uh so i want to i want to end on this other note that we talked about a little bit before of using hollow kingdom as a way to talk about um the world as a, a broader um a broader place than just humanity and i i le- really like the way that you you're using the zombie apocalypse as a way to talk about that because like for that's used as the the barometric measure of like a the ultimate catastrophe that could befall the planet and yet yeah like the message that i took away from this is that it would be bad for us (laughs) but but there's the perspective of that there is so much larger a world at play than just us or even just animals you know yeah i i love the fact that you brought the trees and 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 there for people like the 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 kind of the community community and the communication of the trees and how they relate to it um just i found it tremendously hopeful to remind myself that there there's so much more to the planet than just us and i think like it's good for us to be reminded of that it's good and it's also, it's refreshing and it's relieving. I, I found that when I started, I was, I was nervous about looking into, you know, what the world would look like without us. And um, there was something very humbling and very inspiring about the fact that it would go on. And, you know, we talk about the end of the world, but we're always talking about the end of us as if, you know, it all stops if we stopped. And I just found it to be fascinating to explore, um, you know, what it would look like without us, you know, from the safety of fiction, from the safety and knowing that we still have time to make changes, that we, there is still hope, you know, we're still here. And um, 
And I think in terms of zombie, it's, it's funny, I, I almost never talk about the zombie side of it because I feel that the zombie element of this book is, is so allegorical. And um, it's sort of, I, I think what the reason that I'm drawn to the zombie genre is because zombies are so often used as social critique. Um, oh, yeah. And, it, and it's so fascinating to me that, you know, this idea that, you know, why, why are we so fascinated with zombies, you know, and, and this idea that zombie stories are often, you know, about this tiny pool of survivors and, and we all have this sort of deep seated fantasy that we would be the ones to make it like we would really, and it's a, a really interesting and fairly narcissistic viewpoint, you know, to think um that we you know but we all hope that we would be the the one of the few survivors um and uh and that seems to be the sort of central focus as well as this idea of well what makes a monster who are the real monsters is it the humans or is it the, the ambulatory dead you know and I, I just i was so inspired by all of that um and i think you know it is really hollow kingdom is is uh, uh, an environmental parable. It is, a, it is all about the idea that, you know, we're not alone on this planet, thank goodness. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And, 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 you know, I use this, um, I use the, these communication systems that you mentioned in the natural world, I call them aura, which is the uh, sort of, it's sort of like the internet of birds and, and, and creatures that are constantly in communication. Um, and then I use um, Echo, which is the communication system uh, underwater in the water world. And then Web, which is the communication that's happening um, under the under the soil, you know, like uh, tree communication through the mycorrhizal web. And um, those are, you know, I, I've given them names. I've, I've played with them. I've made jokes about them and um, done comparisons to the to the Internet. Uh, but the truth is, is those communication systems are happening all the time. I, um, you know, I sit outside with the birds and I'm, I'm sort of, I try to tune in and I try to listen to what's happening. And, and you can do that. You can, you can sort of start to pay attention and, and see that there, that everything is in communication. Um, and that, for example, you know, I have these uh, crazy little dark tide juncos in my yard and they are there without question, the alarm system for my neighborhood. So I have learned their alarm calls and have been able to predict, um, twice been able to predict a cat showing up in my yard because I heard the Juncos yell about it, you know, which is extraordinary. That's something that we can do. We can learn to do that. I think we've just kind of forgotten that we're really a part of nature, you know, and we've we've sort of um, taken this narrative that, that we're its sovereign and, and the most important species. But it's kind of refreshing to realize that we're not. It's a it's a shared. We're in it together, right? <laughs> well, yeah, and I I think that's so much of, uh, you know, modern existential ennui and depression is about this idea of not belonging, and yeah. you know I think it is refreshing yeah. to think like there's more than one way to belong, and yeah. like there's there's you know you don't have to be myopically focused on where you find your community. The community is right there. Um, and yeah. I, I hope that that's hopeful for people. Um, yeah. So uh, we're I, th gonna... I think that's tremendously hopeful. <laughs> I agree. I think because yeah. that that means that it, it just means that it's it just it's already there. It's it's like the um, it's the it's the ruby red slippers, right? You're already right? you know it's been there all along, and that I think there's a little magic in that too. Yeah. Yeah.
Um, so we've been talking to Kira Jane Buxton, the author of Hollow Kingdom, uh, just a fantastic book. It's on a lot of people's lists of the best books of last year. Um, and uh, I will remind you that I'm Alex Dolan and this is Thrill Seekers. But for Kira, for people to find out more about you other than going to their favorite bookstore, what's the, the best thing for them to do? Um, well, funny for me to <laughs> recommend the internet after the book I've written, but I am <laughs> I, <laughs> it's a little hypocritical, but um, I am at kirajanebuxton.com uh, and I'm on Instagram um, uh, at kirajanewrites and also on Twitter at kirajanewrites. Um, and I'm usually posting pictures of my, uh, my bird friends and squawking about birds and other animals and, and the natural world. And I assume it's Kira Jane, W-R-I-T-E-S. Yes, that's it. That's the one. <laughs> Not the legal rights for Kira Jane. No. Yeah, okay, all right. Yeah, no, no, nothing litigious about it. <laughs> um, Kira, thank you so much. It's a great book, Hollow Kingdom. Um, thank you so much for making the time to come on. It was a pleasure talking to you. Oh, thank you. The pleasure was all mine. I had a blast. <laughs>